Really at Jam City, we want to treat the players first and foremost. We really care about their experiences. That comes down to ad quality and what type of ads they're seeing. So we want to make sure that the performance is there. A waterfall management does take a lot of time. The big drawback is the back and forth with networks, obviously the uh, analysis behind it, and not always is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. That was Kyle. Kyle is the Senior Director of Ad Monetization from Jam City, and he uses IronSource's platform to automate his monetization and grow game revenue. That is time that is really maximized and could theoretically be a 50 to 100% to 2x increase in overall ad revenue. Theoretically, Level Play just automates a lot of that. That is a huge time sink for a lot of our teams. Want to grow like Jam City? Get the SDK on ironslc.com. That's ironslc.com. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppSlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppSlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppSlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsliers.com. What's up, everybody? We're here with Twig 122. We've got myself, Joe Kim, Mishka Katkoff, Eric Kress, and Adam Telfer. Today, we're going to be talking about four articles. First, PUBG New State is a futuristic new battle royale game for Android and iOS by The Verge. Second, Genshin Impact Development Cost by GamesIndustry.biz. Third, Google Stadia Problem, a video game unit that's not googly enough by Bloomberg. And finally, Spotify says it's letting employees work from anywhere while still paying San Francisco and New York salaries by Business Insider. What's up, everybody? Mishka, I know your house renovations continue. When's it all going to be done? Yeah, I'm out here in the woods just recording this. And um, yeah, it's um, a lot of work to be done. We moved into a new place. So I'm actually trying to follow Eric's crest steps and building a little bit of a home gym. Uh, I'm not trying to hit 25% body fat, dude. I'm, I'm trying to hit like single digits. <laughs> So, yeah, so you were doing when I first met you, dude. You were fucking shredded, dude. I remember that. And, uh, and now I'm I don't not. know what's happened to you. I guess the uh, the pandemic. But now <laughs> you're like a fat guy in the woods, dude. What's dude, going on? It's um, it's a, it's a startup life, like just straight up ramen noodles and and um. <laughs> dude, you better get so, in shape before your wife leaves you, dude. Just saying. Wow! Wow! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, any other thing? My, wife, sorry, right. my wife married me fat. So she, she's, this is what she, she doesn't actually, she likes, she doesn't like the thin. She'd rather have the fat, but you know, I'm working on it. All right. All right. So, um, truth from Eric. <laughs> 
right, <laughs> let's uh, move on to updates. So first, just one quick update from me. We actually recorded a podcast on the dangers of vertical integration between ad tech companies and game studios. Just address the haters out there, part of Hater Nation. But anyway, uh, I felt this discussion was really great and an example of the kind of discussion you will never see at any games industry conference anywhere in the world ever. So you got to come here to get content like that. Link in the show notes. Adam, updates. Yeah, so uh, for WB, I'm actually hiring um, for uh, senior product positions here in my central product management group. Um, we look over a whole bunch of studios, including HD, PC console, as well as mobile. Um, so anybody kind of looking for a broader experience, kind of taking on a few different studios and a lot of different strategic problems, um, definitely reach out. Um, but that's the end of my WB spiel. Um, because now, for the rest of it, is my own voice, dude, not WB that's voice. Like, that's like two weeks in a row you're doing public service announcements <laughs> I have for WB, to. dude. I have to. Be uh, very is careful. WB paying us? Let's get the HR guys. I don't HR want Kotaku guys. articles on me, don't want, especially with you around, Eric. I don't want any <laughs> Kotaku articles around me. All right. <laughs> uh, next one. Um, so last week, we covered Valheim. Um, one thing we didn't cover uh, that actually Master the Meta had an email that I thought was interesting. So Valheim reports or is published by Cof- Coffee Stain. Coffee Stain is a group with an embracer. So I know we've been throwing a lot of um, questions uh, and critical thoughts at Embracer, um, but they're getting the benefit of Valheim somehow, right? I don't know what percentage, who knows what the deals are, but still Valheim was built by this five-person team and, you know, Iron Gate Studios is published by Coffee Stain, so Embracer is getting some benefit from this. Uh, second update I got is around EA. So there was two big news this week. One was that Anthem Next has been canceled. And second was that Dragon Age 4, their multiplayer components have been pulled. So it basically means that EA is backing away from live service being Bioware's future, which makes sense to me, but also makes me sad. Um, it makes sense since you know Dragon Age is a synonym for scope load. This game notoriously took seven years to develop in the early 2000s, which at the time was absolutely crazy. But by today's cyberpunk standards, it's probably not that crazy. Um, but then to kind of multiply in by adding a live service element to Dragon Age, right? You look at what happened with Anthem, which also notoriously had a very long development cycle, which ended up still being underbaked by the time it was released and panned by critics. Um, so also Avengers recently, live service ambitions, long production, very, very, um, like struggled on release. So you've got live service multiplied by open world RPG multiplied by COVID, and you've got the recipe for a massive money sink with high risk. So overall, this makes sense. Shift to a more cost controlled, premium open world RPG and build a game that can hit that market as effectively as possible. Don't hyper extend the team and force them to build something that's obviously counter to their culture and Bioware. So hopefully find ways to grow the revenue of Dragon Age franchise through units rather than through live service. Okay, that makes sense to me. It's sad because Bioware will just not be a future facing studio. Um, They'll continue to operate in their lane and do that as effectively as they can, um, but uh, likely will shrink over time rather than grow. That's my notes. Eric, I'm going to offer my thoughts here. I'm I'm really torn on this one because I know what Dragon Age does is they do really well. Um, However, I think uh, Bioware itself has not really evolved with the times and they're not really building contemporary games. And we're going to talk a little bit later about people can fly 
building this amazing uh, uh, Outriders game, which may not do well, but the fact is that they're actually putting their resources into building the capability of building something like that, like Destiny, like Division. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like Bioware is going to evolve in that way. But the purists that love Bioware will love the fact that they're just going to make the games that they make. And there is a market for that. It's just not as good and, and lucrative for the publishers. But um, as I said many times before, is that since Laura Miele took over um, at EA, she's really kind of changing the studio's not in her image, but with in with her perspective. So with mobile, with with Bioware, Dice helping respawn, kind of build out their thing. So she, I think she's doing an exceptional job of of making sure that these studios are are working well. But the the two leaders that left Bioware recently was a really scary, scary thing. So <laughs> you know, it's like there's a, it's not all like you know roses over there. So anyway, I guess I'm just kind of rambling, but. I am a little bit sad that they're not going to make a contemporary game, but I am also excited that what they're going to build is going to be true to what they've done in the past um, and hopefully better than the last Mass Effect. <laughs> hey, guys, so Anthem Next, was that the Anthem refactor out of the Texas studio? Is that what that was? And it, yeah, if, yeah. if so, what's happening to the Texas studio? Are they going to shut that down? or No, no, I think it was just a 30-person team that was kind of like tasked with figuring out what it would take in order to redo Anthem. Right. Got it. Okay. I, I don't even honestly, I mean, obviously I'm I'm very relatively cynical. I, I never thought that they would actually do it, right? It doesn't even make sense to re-release a game. It's like the same thing that CD Project's gonna have to realize is that re-releasing this game is irrelevant, right? No one cares anymore. Move on, right? <laughs> I mean, no one was talking about Anthem. I think what's the, you you report on this, Adam, right? Like the interest, I don't know, or maybe I read it somewhere, but no one cared about Anthem. Like Anthem was over like like a month or two after it was released, like the memory of, of, of the audience is so short when it comes to these type of things. Um, they are anticipating the next thing, not, not, not what is had in the past, right? You, I, you don't really see many evidence of, particularly on the console side of games that reinvent themselves, you know, like th this doesn't happen, right? So Avengers, same thing. It's like, stop throwing money at that, build something else, you know, anyway, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. I don't know about if Adam agrees with that, but I think it's more about the yearly expansion stuff, right? Like Destiny did manage to pivot themselves away, tweak themselves away using yearly expansions, uh, right? Like Destiny 2's launch wasn't ideal, still did fine, right? Um, but in the case of even Division 2, right, launch didn't go exceptionally well. And then by year two, they pivoted with the New York expansion. Um, so with Avengers, they could do a major year, year one expansion, maybe pivot away from Hopefully, fix some but, of the issues. But I, but I, but I, but both those games, I'm sure, had far more DAUs, MAUs, right? They were playing, continue to play the game. They were engaged, right? I just don't think Marvel or Anthem, like, was anybody playing Anthem? I mean, no way, dude. I mean, like, it was probably in the thousands, right? Like, you know, two thousand people like were actively playing Anthem. There's nothing to do. So, yeah. Meanwhile, no, I, like, could, I could look at like whatever the the MAU charts for that stuff, but it did not. Yeah, like yeah. I'd be interested. Yeah, that'd be interesting. And in Avengers, I, I bet that's pretty small right now too. All right, um, my piece of couple of small updates. So, since Adam is hiring people, I'm hiring as well. So Savage Game Studios is hiring in Berlin and studio. So we're looking for studio AD, always looking for Unreal programmer and looking for an office manager in Berlin. So if anybody is, knows anybody who's interested to become an office manager, we definitely want for one. And maybe someone that'll fix your freaking internet, dude. Uh, this is actually <laughs> how fluky, so that's true. <laughs> anyway, a couple of news. So Game Refinery uh, was announced today that it sold to Vungle. 
Um, congratulations to Game Refiner and congratulations to, to Bungle. I've been an advisor with Game Refiner for over two years and uh, they've done really cool things. So we first built the taxonomy with them and and um, since then they've been more and more automating how they uh, research game, how they find all these features and, and adding more of like personas aspect to it. Uh, they've, they've been doing a great job and it's a really good tool for game developers and it has become a tool for marketers as well. So there's uh, definitely a synergy between between what Bungle is doing and where, where they're heading. Can, somebody, can someone quickly explain to me what the synergy is? I'm a fan of Game Refinery. I think they make yeah. a really cool tool. Um, but why would Bungle need Game Refinery in uh, too well, short the uh, the amount of data that they have on games helps actually with with targeting. So what they've been doing, what the game refiner has been working with several studios on marketing side. They used to work mainly with the studio side, just with the game developers. But they started working with marketers for I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, uh, as they have more and more data that allows you to not only see what what other games are similar and where do you fall in the taxonomy, but also a lot of the data regarding. Uh, regarding app store optimization, how the games look. Know, what does it have so, to do with Vungle? Well, Vungle is an is an ad network, and they are looking naturally with the AT and T. They're looking at better their ability to target different players, and the better they target, the better players they show their video network. I mean, Vungle is primarily a video network. Uh, the better the better service they can provide. And if you look at any of the other competitors, be it AppLovin, be it Iron Source, be it Unity, they're all are vertically integrating as jk has done has done the uh, the post on it they are looking at at as many ways to to get get the uh, the game developers hooked into their platform so they can do, do a i don't get it sorry i don't get i, it. I think I'm, it's I'm probably idiot. more from a classification perspective eric probably rather than from I, you know customer i, I don't I, I don't get it i don't get it ad network game refinery <laughs> game refiners is a bunch of features and hey, games right hey, let's, I mean, it's a really let's, cool put it, let's put it this way just i can simplify it overly so when you understand the taxonomy and where players are playing for certain games you can kind of understand where the players are moving back and forth between which games now you could have done this before if you just use your whatever attribution platform or whatever you can see where the players are coming from. But when you take that away, you need more theoretical information and, and, quant- and qualitative information on how players are moving between different games and then make your ad strategy based on that. That would be my take. Again, we All can right. have... I, I will just let's on. move on because uh, my brain is not... All right, let's move on to this. This is an IPO news. So Tiny Build... Uh, is a game developer that is IPOing in London AIM, which is the secondary market. Now, Tiny is, Tiny Build is quite tiny on mobile. I pulled out their latest data from last year, and they had like 17 million downloads with maybe 4 million of gross revenue. Their main hit is Hell, Hell oh, Hello on Neighbor. Neighbor. Yeah, Hello Neighbor game. This is on PC. It's apparently very popular with kids. Yeah. And their expertise is to scout Eastern European studios. The CEO is Russian, but lives in the US. And they acquire those studios very early, again, focused on PC. Now, rumor has it, this is now I can get it, now I can get it, tell a rumor. So, rumor has it that there's a lot of interest from investors because of the scarcity of gaming. And the take names on the AAM market of the London Stock Exchange and valuation for these type of mid caps on AIM is typically several hundred millions. 
this is this is not going to end well, man. This is certainly not going to end well when companies like this are going public, and then these companies in Poland, like huge, and all these other things going public. This is going to be a bloodbath, dude. I, 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 I'm telling you, dude. Anyway, um, let's not not and, huge too much. I, I like yeah, the huge guys. Yeah. You guys, wait, but, but these companies have no business being public, dude. All these companies, it's crazy. This is this is crazy talk. Oh, but by the way, oh, I didn't even say this, but the um, uh, Roblox is going public. Did we talk about this last week? I can't remember. But the Roadshow presentation was really, really interesting. I think I think they did a good job, dude. That guy is Halliday. Like he is Halliday from Ready Player One. Like the CEO of of Roblox. Like you listen to him, and he is just whoosh out in the out there, man. It's awesome. Right, I can't wait. But uh, but they did a good job of explaining the whole pro- the products and and what what their strategy is, the geographic expansion, whatever. I think again, their biggest challenge, and I'm not going to go into this too much, is is uh, is uh, um, uh, demographic expansion. But I think geography, they probably have some room to grow. But anyway, it's really interesting presentation. I thought it was really well done. Um, oh, the next thing was, <laughs> I swear, on cue, like a day or two after I put that, we talked about this is that. The uh, Zynga was announced as a nominated nomination for GameIndustry.biz top fifty developers, right? Right after that fluff piece on on Bromberg or whatever his name is. Uh, but I can't seem to find the story. But I saw the notification. But anyway, I guarantee you, dollars to donuts that this that they will be top ten fit game developers in two thousand twenty one, as if they same as they were they were number one last year because that's the way this business works. It's dirty, dirty stuff um the other thing that i came god it was off my radar i still don't understand how this happened but outriders came out and as a demo across all platforms basically that matter uh which does not include nintendo um basically it's a class-based looter shooter excuse me that's exactly what i love um it feels like a really well-designed anthem even though it's not a mech game by any stretch but it's post-apocalyptic it's like this uh, huge story arc etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's the way anthem should have been designed from the get-go in terms of now i'm not saying this game is going to be amazing i'm not saying that i'm saying it it, it, it ticks all the boxes for me right um uh, is t- the demo was actually technically very rough. I was surprised that you throw out a demo that had any type of, particularly on PC, I was having all kinds of hiccups and problems with dialogue, et cetera. But the game, and the game actually comes out in a month. So that makes me a little bit worried that it might get delayed or whatever in order to fix some things that were in that thing. And and the other things, we don't really know what the end game is, which is actually critical to long-term retention for these type of games, as everyone knows. Um, but... Uh, I don't. I think it should look. I mean, I think everyone should take a look and see if, if they like that that kind of game, like Division and, and Destiny, um, and what Anthem could have been. Uh, this is a great game to look at, and I'm I'm excited to find to have something to play. Right, I haven't been really playing much except for World of Warcraft, as I've said. So this will give me something to play on day one for sure. Stay tuned, folks. We're going to take a quick commercial break with our sponsor, Beta Hat, and we will be right back. So stay tuned. I want to talk about consumer insights. Honestly, I've always had issue with consumer insights. I questioned the value and felt that CI was always somewhat disconnected from the real world. The big issue with CI firms is they don't hire people that know anything about video games and therefore don't have a fundamental understanding of what matters in this business. That's why I like Beta Hat. Beta Hat knows the business of video games and understands how to connect consumer insights to the real world. And Beta Hat helps you understand your customers, understand not only what they do, but why. They specialize in customer segmentations, brand tracking, messaging, and positioning, 
pricing and SKU planning, and playtesting through qualitative and quantitative research. There are about 10 people in this industry that I rely upon to understand trends. And one of them is Stan Kwan, the CEO of BetaHat. BetaHat is the best CI team in the industry. Go to betahatmr.com for more information. That's betahatmr.com. Welcome back, everybody. And now on to the news. All right, cruising into news. So first news item, PUBG New State is a futuristic new battle royale game for Android and iOS, as reported by The Verge. And so we are going to see a new PUBG mobile game, and it's set in 2051, years after the current PUBG games. And The Verge suggests that based on early images, the game looks very similar to Call of Duty, Black Ops 3 and 4 from an art style perspective. And PUBG New State, unlike PUBG Mobile, will actually be developed by PUBG Studio. And that's different because PUBG Mobile, as many of us already know, was developed actually by Tencent. And finally, The Verge also suggests the game will also differentiate by diving more into the lore of the overall PUBG universe. And uh, kind of surprising, I didn't know there was a lot of PUBG lore, but I guess they're going to try and build that out. <laughs> so my take on this is that, you know, it sounds like a pretty smart move by, you know, Krafton by building it themselves. They'll get higher margins on the game by cutting out Tencent. And also, I'm not sure when they made the decision to make this game internally, but I would believe that, you know, it, I, I got to believe that a lot of the sort of U.S. versus China app war stuff, as well as what happened between in, in India, where PUBG Mobile was banned, uh, that that probably weighed into their decision to create a, a game on their own as well. Any thoughts from you guys? Yeah, I mean, I always get so confused with all this because, you know, the PUBG guys were, were used to be called Blue Hole, right? And then they changed their name to Crafton. And then I think what people don't realize is that the PC version of the title was built by Crafton, formerly known as Blue Hole, and the mobile version was built by Tencent, right? And there's and so, PUBG Corp too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's the PUBG Corp? Is that it within PUBG Corp is within Crafton, and they're the ones who make PUBG. So Crafton is like See, the... <laughs> Anyway, what the fuck? Just make it, make it consistent, goddammit. Anyway, so just all you have to know is the PC version is being made by Blue Hole, Crafton, and the mobile version that exists right now that's an amazing, 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 well-built title for mobile um, is built by Tencent. So these guys are basically... And, Lightspeed and Quantum, right? Like Tencent, but Lightspeed and Quantum. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Why are you making things so... Versus Timmy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So... Um, so what's interesting is, you know, Tencent owns 11% of, of, of Krafton slash Boohole, right? And so now they're basically building a game to compete directly with Tencent, which is freaking awesome, right? It's gangster, right? But what I don't know is how good they are going to be building a game on mobile because the team from Tencent that built that thing was amazing, right? So, and whether or not an, a separate PUBG can exist in the same world as the existing PUBG because a lot of people have spent a lot of time and effort building up their profiles and their characters and their gear and whatever, moving over to another game without any type of, of, of uh, what's the right word? Yeah, like cross progression, moving, right? Yeah, like, some progression. Moving to yeah. a brand new game just seems like pretty, pretty difficult, right? And they obviously probably will not have 10 cents support <laughs> in China, right? So they're going to have to publish this on their own, I would think, you know? So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be a really great case study in cannibalization, generally speaking. Um, I think 
personally, and I'm sorry, Mr. Joseph and Meshka, I've said this before. I think the the uh, shooting category is getting 100% way too crowded because it represents like 4% of the overall market. And we have like 12 games going after it, two that are absolute juggernauts. Um, uh, and, and with, with uh, you know, with Fortnite leaving, there is some room there, I per se, per se, but like at the end of the day, I don't know how big this genre can be, be on P on mobile with all these competitors. Cause we have battlefield coming, we have apex coming, we have now this new PUBG game, and then we have existing PUBG and call of duty. It's like, dude, is, all these battlefield covered. coming to mobile. Is that this, this is, this uh, is coming from a guy who was just going crazy about outriders on PC and, and, and console. Like, listen, you're talking about, again, a smaller game that you're super excited about. And all these shooters that you just mentioned actually exist on the platforms that you're playing. Yeah. yeah I gotta say, I, I gotta agree. It's super competitive. I think everyone should avoid this category. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> everyone stay out of this. It's a bloodbath guys. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, this is actually a very interesting piece of news because yeah, because as you said, it's it's um it's the fact that PUBG is one of the most successful games on mobile ever. Because even if we look at the uh, the shooter revenues in the West, that's one two point one billion. But if we look at overall revenues for all PUBG games, so two point one billion in net revenues. But if we look at the revenues for PUBG alone worldwide, it made one point eight billion last year. And the shooter category is growing. The downloads are growing significantly. The revenues are growing. Um, but what's interesting about the PUBG game is like 60% of the revenues are coming from China and quarter of the installs are actually coming from India. And I think there was a little bit of a, would have, a little bit of a challenge where they pulled the game out of India. Am I correct, JK? Uh, among yeah, it got banned out of India. Yeah, yeah it got it's banned. still out. banned. Yeah, and, but Eric is right. The PvP market is getting crazy competitive, even without Fortnite. We've got Apex, as you mentioned. Battlefield is rumored. Only a matter of time before probably like Tom Clancy comes in. Like there was already that, that Chinese version of Tom Clancy that was successful for like a week. And um, you can kind of see that there's a, there's a persistent demand also because the amount of installs keeps on growing outside the top titles, outside the top four, the Free Fire, the Fortnite, the Call of Duty, and the PUBG. And that creates opportunities for market entry. So my prediction is that, that the new entrants that will focus on progression will find those blue spots in the extremely red ocean. And the key is finding, it, is, the way, is finding a way to retain and monetize this audience without succumbing to competing to head-to-head -head against the top players in the category. That's my, that's my opinion. But I agree with JK that you should really avoid this, this category in games. It's extremely competitive. <laughs> There's a lot of big entrants and it's a red ocean. So just, you know, I think merge is the way to go. Uh, it's a, uh, it's yeah. hard to that, I want to see, I want to see your pitch disagree, deck for dude. VC. <laughs> hey, by the way, by the way, has anybody actually heard of any of the Ubisoft IPs being brought to mobile by, by Chinese developers or something? Have you? Yes, there's, because there's that makes total sense. I know these teams are going after licenses, like with reckless abandon. I keep hearing yeah. about them, like approaching this person and that person. So I, I don't know why this hasn't even been done now by now. Right. Because that's just an obvious so, so Ubisoft fit. has a big, big studio, I believe in Shenzhen. Am I correct? JK, do you know? No, no. Okay. First of all, stop, stop. Ubisoft no. cannot make a fucking console, cannot make a mobile game, period. Yes. Forget it. Forget that. That team, I mean, that team is actually pretty good, but they, no, no, they're not making mobile. I'm saying the Tencent guys are big, Tencent and Nexon and freaking Netmarble and Netties are all like just basically taking their existing games and just 
you know, using a license and porting it all over and, and, and bringing it to market. Right. So that makes a lot of sense for them to do that with the Clancy stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean, they already proved that they can do it without the Tom Clancy IP. So maybe, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting to see, but I would, I would presume that Tom Clancy would be one of the next games to come out from Ubisoft made by a Chinese company. I mean, that, that's what I would suggest. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think everyone, everything's been said, but um, I just hope they aren't doing standard Battle Royale, right? They're not just doing PUBG, but in the future, right? That they're going to be going closer to Tarkov or Vigor, right, in design. Because I think that could actually give them a leg up in the space. But I think <laughs> Don't get me started overall, on Vigar, that fucking cottage building game. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a nice cottage, right? But like, it's yeah, a, it's it's a, it, it, but it's I don't nice. know how, like, everything's been said right now, right? Like, yeah. this, this is, is not Tencent building this game. So we should not be expecting PUBG Mobile level success, right? And like the, the stakes of competing in a PvP genre fueled completely by cosmetics is massive. So... I hopefully I, I'm assuming they know what they're walking into because they can look at it on PUBG Mobile. Um, but yeah, I, I just hope that they're going to sidestep this by doing something more interesting in their design. Um, but yeah, let's move forward. Um, so Miho Yo, I'm going to keep <laughs> keep messing up their names, so I apologize. But Miho Yo um, and Genshin Impact. So there there was a tweet this week uh, which actually came from an address during to the alumni of Shanghai University. Uh, the co-founder, uh, Kai Hayu. Sorry, I'm totally going to botch every name in this whole article. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, revealed some pretty big numbers. So the company's revenue is now $774 million for, two, uh, for 2020. And note, that's not all Genshin Impact. So before we start triangulating mobile to PC revenue, because roughly $375 million was their 2019 revenue from their existing games before Genshin. And if you remember, Genshin didn't launch until Q4 of 2020. So MiHoYo is scaling rapidly due to Genshin Impact and actually increased their headcount 70% to 2,400 people by the end of 2020, which is insane, right? That's that's a big number, man, for that much revenue. Yeah. So that's like the, Ubisoft stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, even just like the, the increasing your headcount by 70%, right? Um, and I, I'm all for it, you know, throwing fuel on the fire as soon as you've got an obvious hit like they have with Genshin Impact. Um, but wow. So also what came out was it cost them roughly $100 million to create Genshin Impact on day one. But since then, they've scaled their live team and their, their live team is actually going to cost them $200 million per year to run this thing. So like for like a comp here, right? Like they, they built breath of the wild for a hundred million dollars as a free to play game. And it's going to cost them two breath of the wilds per year to, <laughs> to, to, to run this thing. And I think that's just what's at stake when you're talking about a game that has the potential to make more than a billion dollars a year. Like it's looking like right now, right? Sensor tower has it estimated making a hundred million a month right now on iOS and Android. Uh, which doesn't include PC console revenue and doesn't include uncaptured Chinese store revenue. So, wow, that's all I can say. My takeaways, I've got two. Number one, Genshin Impact's path 
is not going to be easily followed. So Genshin Impact was not built by a little scrappy form team backed by a little bit of VC investment for one game, right? This was a studio formed in 2011 who had built successful games like this before in China. You look at Hunkai Impact from 2016, this is basically Genshin Lite, right? They obviously knew how to build these types of games and just Genshin Impact was the game that obviously performed absolutely the best, but still 375 million a year is nothing to sneeze at. And this one of course is now launched cross platform and really refined the experience. The Genshin Impact model is not a first game for a scrappy startup. This is a game for a scaled team that are experts at creating AAA content, systemic depth for running a gotcha game and live operations. Like, like thinking back to that quick update on Bioware, right? The combinations of these things are not easy, right? Transforming a AAA studio to become like those other two aspects is not feasible. Transforming a traditional mobile CCRPG studio to become a AAA content studio is not easy, right? So really huge props to this team for being able to do it and huge execution risk for anybody who assumes they can walk in without those pillars. So I hope anyone that's using Genshin Impact as proof of their game pitch for VC funding in startup slides is listening to this. Okay, number two is that lean live ops doesn't matter. The game truly is like building you know, Breath of the Wild twice per year, right? And I think when you look at this type of game, right, sometimes there is a inclination when you've got a hit game that you want to lean down your live ops and build out a structured team that is as small as possible to fund new R&D. That is the absolute wrong approach. Always you should be asking yourselves when you look at a game like the success like this, how do you throw more fuel on the fire? How do you add more people to this? How do you invest more into um, an already scaled service? And I think it's impressive the live content cadence that they got to. They're releasing a new character every three weeks alongside limited time modes that actually drive that character collection, as well as nodes, et cetera, on that map. Like what other Western AAA developer could actually do that? It's very impressive, right? Like it's like Valorant. Valorant only launches a new character every two months, right? Warframe isn't near, nearly this fast. So it's just impressive. Um, anyways, I'm just sitting here awestruck about uh, what they've managed to create. Um, there's still plenty of gaps there in terms of their systems, but no, it, it's impressive. And I uh, wish everyone luck who's trying to follow in their footsteps. Uh, Eric? Um, well, I didn't, I didn't hear that. The employee count part, I didn't hear about that. So I just did a little bit of back of the envelope calcs here for a moment here. That is a shit ton of employees, man. That is like, like they literally are doing $290,000 per employee based upon last year's revenue. Compare that to EA, which is at like 50, 515,000 per employee revenue and, and Activision, which is $915,000 per employee. And, like, and keep in mind, that's only three months of Genshin Impact revenue, right? That's only Q4 when we're looking at 2020, right? All right, all right, all right. So that right? Should, so, should come up over time. But still, yeah. the, the, you know, even if you double it, um, eh, maybe that'll be comparable to uh, EA. EA is obviously not as nearly as profitable as, uh, <laughs> as uh, Activision. But anyway, um, what I was going to say here. Uh, yeah, this again, and I said this many times, it feels like a, a really a false positive um, in the industry that a game like this can be successful given the amount of risk associated with dedicating 100 to $300 million in a few years to a game. 
Um, you know, I think a lot of people are scrambling to replicate this type of success, but I guess given the cost of development and cost of maintenance, I think this is going to be a tough road for everyone, anyone. And if you look at the market as a whole and you see what's out there, I think there's a lot more hang lower hanging fruit uh, and opportunities to build games on um, even cross-platform games that make more sense than this big massively MMO that <laughs> requires that much development spend. But uh but I, I, I more power to them. And the game is amazing. It's, it continues to be really, people are continuing to be engaged. They're delivering the content. Um, so they're doing a great job of managing what they've built. So, uh, you know, more power to them. So Eric, you don't think this is going to be replicated? I actually think there are going to be other, not Western studios, but other no. Chinese studios over time that replicate this model. Sorry. Now, there won't be a lot of hits, but there, I no, think no, there I'm will sorry. be more. Sorry, I, I, I mis, misquoted. Yes, okay. I do think there will be some fast follows in Asia that may actually find some success. But I, I think for Western developers, this idea would be really followed. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine Activision hiring 2,400 people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In Santa Monica. <laughs> well, hell, even 700. 2,400 is not just Genshin Impact. I know, but even, even, even hiring 700 to build this... And to yeah. dedicate, you know, 150 to 200 million dollars in RD budget, no, no way, yeah. man, that's well, not happening. But well, um, couldn't couldn't Bungie do something like this? Yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, but that it wouldn't be cross-platform. They 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 would focus on PC console. I don't think they would ever build a mobile game, ever. Really? But let's say let's say in the future when mobile devices are, you know, even more capable. It's irrelevant. And, uh, it's not capability is not relevant. They're about the feel, like the the shooting, right? Like they they're all about like that 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 I don't hate this word that this word, but visceral like experience of of shooting. And if you play Destiny or the old Halos, like it's a it's a masterpiece, right? In terms of control and 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 you can't get that on mobile devices. They're too much purists. But I could be wrong. I mean, they took an investment from Netties, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Took, yeah. that, that's what I kind of meant. And they have gigantic teams. And they are good. Yeah, but but Netties has no control over what they do. And 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 uh, I did, I actually did a, a panel with Bitcraft uh, and had the Netties guy on. And their real strategy is just making investments that they don't really have any exert any type of control over what they're doing. Yeah. I am excited for that project, though. Um, yeah. Uh, I think whatever they do is going to be pretty amazing. Yeah. The next game that people should be looking out for is Black Myth Wukong. Now I've heard. Word on the street and from 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 people in China is that the game is actually like the the demo is amazing. I, I hear there's issues with the game, but you gotta imagine another studio, whether it's Black Myth Wukong. I hope I, I hope that game does well, but at some point another another Chinese studio is gonna do this, and then you know can again can Western studios compete? Whether it's you know Santa Monica Studios or in Santa Monica or you know, Blizzard or other studios in Irvine. I think just the, the talent pool isn't there, right? Just getting, I think just, just amassing 500 people in any of those cities is challenging. So Jake, Jake got burned by Mid LA. Wukong, is Blacksmith <laughs> Wukong a premium game or is it a free-to-play game? Like, is it a free-to-play MMO like this or is it something else? 
You know, I, I don't know because there isn't feels- enough detail, but you like Chinese in general are good at free to play and free to play monetization, course, yeah. right? But yeah. the way that it, it the way that it played, it seemed like it was it was you know premium is what it looked like. Yeah, it felt like premium. It felt like a Devil May Cry game or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what then, it looked like. And so maybe they're doing the Randy Pitchford gearbox like super amazing vertical slice, and the game comes out and it's totally terrible, right? Like. <laughs> That could happen. I hope not, but yeah, that's that's the word on the street. Right. Um, all right. My story, well, I am picking really terrible stories. I, I you know, but there's always morals to these stories that needs to be <laughs> needs to be told, right? So I'm doing another Google Stadia story, not because I really want to, but but just because it actually did trend pretty heavily. Like it was covered by almost everybody. Um, and again, it was Jason Schreier, who I do respect, the guy is in the weeds on this stuff, man, talking to people and really understanding what's going on. But I think what he did here, if I may be a little bit critical, is he found a data point and tried to build a narrative around it as opposed to actually like making sense. <laughs> so anyway, here we go. So uh, basically, uh, Jason, he did a piece on Bloomberg about Sadie. It was picked up by a lot of different outlets. Um, and uh, But Jason basically was, Jason clearly has great access, but he brings up, I think he brings up something that Google actually did right. And that this article like was, was kind of like portrayed as something that Google did wrong. Right. So anyway, he points out that Google Stadia came out with an absolutely massive bang and it was like fresh, flashy press releases, you know, places that conferences and shows. And it was, these were all pushed by Phil Harrison. Right. And this was like kind of the old school way of building out a console. Right. And that actually, actually set the expectations from the consumer way too high for what was released last year in area 19. Right. Um, and where the features and the content that they promised really just did not exist. And again, the players didn't like the business model, et cetera. And rather than doing that, what they should have done is what Microsoft and Amazon are maybe doing is rolling it out more gradually the way that they do it at Google with all their different uh, features, whether it be, you know, Gmail and others, et cetera. So, so I guess maybe, and, and, and internally, I think they felt like the buildup was way too much and that likely they should have pushed the release to next year to really uh, execute on the expectation. Um, and that was kind of what the source was saying uh, that he was talking to, but you know, I, I don't know if I definitely agree with all that, right? I don't think you can really slow start a console, right? I, I don't, I even know how that's even possible, to be honest. Um, and I think, you know, even though the, his approach probably didn't match, like, generally Google style, like uh, Harrison's approach didn't match Google style, which is like, think big and start small and build it up. I think that's the only way you can really release a console is what I'm trying to get across here, you know? And so what they... What the data point that they actually he actually got that was supposedly this big like reveal was that take two he paid they paid take two and Ubisoft tens of millions of dollars to build their games for con- their console their platform and I'm like, of course they did like do you know how much money is spent on building out a new platform from Nintendo or or Sony or Microsoft do you know how much like palms are greased and like shit's gone down in order to make these things successful yeah they shell out 
tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of development stuff and, and marketing guarantees and all this other stuff. That's the way the business is, right? And so when he's saying that this was like a failure on their part, no, I think this is actually the right way. And the only way they could have actually executed better on this, if they just delayed it a year, you know, that they met the expectations of what this thing could be. But regardless, and I'm not going to go into this anymore, um, is that I still think they would have failed, right? No matter what they did, because I don't think it's a product that has a market, as we've said many times. But um, but I, I just think that in general, like Google, just it's just a failure of understanding what the console market is and and what the who the customer is and what they expect, and and they just did again did not have a product that fit the market. So I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole again. But I just want to point out that like. I think that was one thing they did right. They did have a good set of content early in this launch relative to something that you... Can you imagine having a, a console that had like six games out and then they were just like spoon-fed you one game per month? I mean, that would have been worse if possible, right? So anyway, that's all I wanted to say about this. Um, I, I do like to you on that though, right? Like the, What's that? To challenge you on that, right? Like in terms of if the, this isn't a real usual console release. So I think they could have had a slow and grow mentality here, right? Like if they hadn't set expectations that it was going to be a major release of hardware in, what was it, 2019, 2018, whatever. Um, instead, they went to, okay, we're going to launch a lot, like keep building on what they did with Assassin's Creed. They launched demos for console games. So they work with console developers to put a demo of Cyberpunk and put it online and allow people to play it, right? Make sure they get the tech to the point where at least on your PC, you can use any controller and the latency is not bad when you're playing on PC, right? Um, slowly grow to the point that latency is no longer an issue. People are pretty happy with the tech, right? And then come out with the hardware launch, right? Like I think they could have had a slower approach, but it still doesn't solve the problem of content, right? Like they still would have had to have invested in those studios internally building games specifically for the, the cloud so that when they did this launch, maybe it would have been 2021 instead of 2019 or whatever. Then they could have had amazing content day one had the big splash, but at that point, their tech would have been built up. They would have gotten at least some, you know, positive sentiment about their technology. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, mean, I hear what you're saying, but I think they were kind of, their back was against the wall to some degree because they hadn't made the investment in building out new content for their platform, which they should have done four fucking years ago, right? But, um, but and so like they had to release something and they probably were kind of pushed to do so. Um, so I don't know if a slow roll would have helped all that much, but I mean, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Like, but that I think their window was closing, right? I think they had a four year window. They were in year two or maybe even year three and they had to release it. Right. And then see what happened. <laughs> you know, like, and then they're going to shut it down by the end of this year. Done by over. Right. So I don't know. It's just a, it was a tough situation for them. I don't know if they're going to shut it down, Eric. I, I, I'm seeing Nintendo Stadia in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to the next article. Let's don't don't take the bait. Don't take I'm the not bait. Taking it. I'm not, not taking the bait. <laughs> so last article, Spotify says it's letting employees work from anywhere while still paying San Francisco and New York salaries. This is from Business Insiders. So a number of major companies have shifted to, shifted to more permanent reward, remote work policies since the coronavirus pandemic appended a British traditional work, work culture. Shit, I'm losing my words. All right. 
Spotify is one of the latest ones. It announced its work from home program, which lets its six and a half thousand global employees choose how they want to work at the company in an office remotely or that co-working space that the company will pay a subscription for. Facebook announced that employees who are experienced can work from home if their manager allows it. Twitter said that workers who don't have to work in an office to perform their job functions can work remotely. So that's just as a reference. Anyway, I'm quoting Spotify's Travis Robinson, who is the head of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, said in the article that the move would promote work-life balance, employee happiness, and inclusion. For one, it's going to help the company attract talent regardless of location, he said. He also said that there will be challenges managing hybrid workforce of in-person and virtual workers, but that the pandemic has given the streaming service experience in making sure virtual workers feel included in meetings, employee resource groups, and company events. All right, here's my take. I agree with Travis Robinson on offering an opportunity for specialists to move back closer to their families wherever they can work uh, more effectively. And our boy Telfer is the perfect example of this one. So big cities are you know, notoriously unattractive for families, which may cause these companies to lose more senior talent as they move out to more family-friendly cities like Helsinki. All right, stop. Just stop. Yes. Dude. This is not yeah. some public service announcement for freaking Finland, dude. <laughs> Knock it off. Always, always down to the background. Anyway, what I will say, the Spotify's approach to remove work in is, in my humble opinion, unrealistic and is based on the interview driven more by ideology than actual business purposes. So people in Oregon, all organizations are in my view, dead tired of Zooms, Hangouts, and blue jeans. There's no informal knowledge sharing as folks are not having lunches or going for beer post-work. Integrating new employees is really difficult, and I predict companies that have scaled up by hiring virtual employees will be in a bit of a bind when they come when, when the moment comes when they actually have to work face-to-face with, this, with these people. And when, uh, once offices open up, we'll see a lot of people going back to offices at least two to three days a week. So what happens to the remote folk? Will, you know, Robinson Spotify put in cameras to watch folks in the office and jump in on coffee table converse, conversations through a speaker? Or maybe there will be a mandate that folks should report about their candid conversation on Slack and apologize for having those without... Uh, including the workers who work remotely. Now, of course, I'm joking, and it's crystal clear that a diverse and creative organization needs to be on-site to work effectively together, and they need to spend time both at work and outside work to to become good colleagues. And and the fact that folks can have more flow state when when they work at home is great, and the fact that the companies are becoming more open to have specialists in remote location is just absolutely fantastic. And I do agree with Twitter's and Facebook's approach, which are much more measured. You know, if you don't have to work in a team, you're going to work remotely. That's great. If, you're, if you have a specific type of work and your manager allows you to work in a different location, that's amazing. Like, you should do that. But for everybody to have those, I don't even call them privileges, but those ways of working is, is pretty insane. So, I don't know. Don't get me. Don't get it twisted. Like we had Zoom. It's not a new invention, and we've had it for years. We had Hangouts for years, but every time people have preferred to have physical meetings, and it's really important that people can meet meet each other. And um, yeah, I I love Spotify. It's it's definitely the it has my favorite podcast. 
20% of the people are listening to this through the Spotify. But the fact is that, that Spotify is, is not the Red Cross. I mean, it's a fantastic audio and video streaming service. And it really gets its, it's not by sharing the creation of others. So I don't feel that the, uh, the platform is, is sort of above criticism uh, regarding this. So I don't know. The question for you guys is like, what are the short, mid and long-term effects of remote work? And how do you think Spotify's everywhere can work wherever, whenever, without a pay cut will work in long-term? I don't know. You know what my view is? I have a very simple view on things. Everything always reverts back to the normal. Everything reverts back to the mean, right? So we've been in this in extreme times and th people are doing extreme things. And, you know, this work change is very extreme. But when things go back to normal, <laughs> it'll be just go right back to where it was before, you know? And it may take some time, right, people to get comfortable. But ultimately, you know, the pressures of, not, of the social, of not being around, in in corporate life like you're going to miss out on so much nuance as to what's going on promotions like if you're not there you're not people aren't aware of you you know like facetime is not some kind of invented term it's like the fa fact is you need to have that kind of uh of exposure to executives and management and they're gonna and ultimately once things are quote unquote safe they're gonna want their people close to them so they can keep an eye on them right so I think a lot of this is just kind of in because we're in it right now. And, you know, like six months, a year from now, I think I don't know if this is what we're going to see as much, you know, I don't know, remote work as as not even close to what the remote level work is now. So that's kind of my take. Adam, you live remote life. Yeah, I'm, I'm fully invested in it. Right. Like hopefully WB doesn't fire me in a year or two because I bought a house here. I'm stuck here. Um, no, for, for, for me, right, like I have, I'm not in the usual, right? Like when you're talking about a game studio and a game team, I completely agree, right? Like what I felt when I was on a game studio and I could basically just roll my chair back, turn around and talk to the developer, talk to the art director, talk, talk to the team, right? You just can't get that with the work from home that we have right now. We've, we've seen it across like many of the projects that I've seen, right, where Productivity obviously has dropped. Creativity has obviously dropped, right? Um, so th that's that's the sacrifice. But I'm lucky enough to be in a role where I'm looking over all these different studios, and I know when things go back to the normal. I've already made, you know, promises and investment that I'm going to have to travel, right? I'm going to have to travel to San Francisco, to LA, to all these different studios to make sure that I've got the face time with people because I completely agree. Um, Zoom is not a replacement for in-person communication, but I've also been a consultant long enough to know that I personally really value working from home. I find myself far more effective working from home in my type of role than I am in the studio. Um, even just with the time difference, time zone difference that I have now, like I have three hours in the morning that I actually can spend building up the documents, setting my mind straight. Um, that I can't do when I'm barraged by meetings as soon as I walk in the door at the studio. So I understand, I understand it, but I'm not going to change. I'm, I'm fully remote. Deal with yeah. it. And, it, and, and, it, and that's why I was in, in the same opinion with Facebook and Twitter, because they've said that with roles where it makes sense, it's actually very good. But, but to have the whole company do that, 
I've, I've again, like we have these positive stories and your story, of course, about working remotely is, is very positive and not only for your family life, but also for your effectiveness. It's It's been tremendous. But then again, I hear so many stories of these studios where, you know, that are not the, <laughs> the, the, the you know, the tip of the spear studios where there's a lot of people and I hear about people working for like one hour, two hours a day, just having their Slack open and doing, just doing a bunch of other stuff and not really doing work. And these people are the ones who are what? <laughs> one to two hours a day. Right? Yes. And then these are the same people that have been but like, who's their managers? Like, how are you measuring their work? How like, if it was a programmer, it would be so obvious if like a, pro- a feature you said would be done in like a week takes you like three weeks. Right. So, this is not from my studio, so I don't know, but I've heard from, from not from colleagues. your studio. Okay, <laughs> yeah, no, from, from the colleagues. I've that this is not this is again only a rumors, but they're basically saying that there's a lot of people who are working only for a couple hours a day, just keeping the slack open and just slacking, like literally slacking, doing all the other stuff, and um, and they are the ones who uh, are. I think, I think you got to you got to figure out those people. You got to like. Yeah, I have not met anyone that is that has been you know, slacking off during work hours, right? In many ways, working from home ends up pushing us to work more hours because more of our time is spent in Zoom chat. So all I've done is promote the idea that you can have no video on, you can do work in some of, yeah. some of these all stupid I, meetings. Adam, all I was saying, all I was saying that, that there's this person who told me about it, he said, the people who work the least out of home were the ones who voted the most that let's keep it remote work always. So in the company internal studies, the ones who work the most. I do not want the takeaway from this podcast to be people that promote remote work do not work. I no, work that's very that's hard. Not, that's not the takeaway. That's not the takeaway. I'm gonna take the I'm gonna take the opposite angle here. I think there are a, a huge slew of women men and women that are like, get me the fuck out of the house, right? And I want to go home and yeah. be with adults and have my babysitter or have my school or my preschool, whatever, take care of my kids so I can actually live and be with adults, right? Mm-hmm. They yeah. need to pull the ripcord to get the hell out of here, right? No, I, I completely, there's definitely people that want to go back to the office, Absolutely. right? And like feel like they're far more effective. I'm frankly, lucky that my should. environment is not. But, yeah. Like we're antisocial enough, dude. This This is not a healthy society thing, you know, where everyone's still at home, like just like, you know, look at, Freaking Joseph over there is getting into Bitcoin now, dude. The guy's like gone down the rabbit hole, man. He's like, oh, he's off the reservation, dude. We don't know where he's going, right? He's going to start doing the, he's doing conspiracy theories. He was already there like six months ago. Now it's Bitcoin. Now it's like, who knows, man? It's like Illuminati shit, right? You got to get, get back to work. Get to the office, man. Be with people. Be normal. All right. That's my public service announcement. Let's get back to work. <laughs> I guess I just have a moderate point of view, right? Is that I think this is this there will be permanent change here. Um, that for roles that it makes sense, people will be working remote. I will be, and I think it does give me advantage for hiring. But I think the norm will be that most studios, especially people that are running a game, need to be back in the office, right? Maybe it'll be two to three days a week. Maybe it'll be four, right? Um, but. Yeah, I guess that's my take. It, it I think, I think take lessons from this, and it will have permanent impact. But it's not going to be everyone working from home all the time. So good luck, Spotify. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. All right, guys. All right. Have a good week. Stay out Peace of trouble. Out. Catch y'all later. Bye. Bye.